Hello, welcome to today's episode of Juicing the Numbers, your statistics and sports podcast. I am one of your hosts, Joshua Tracy. And I am one of your hosts, Corwin Heller. And today we will be uh, sharing an interview with you that we did, or really a conversation that we had with Keith McPherson, who is one of the hosts of the uh, Pinstripe Strong podcast. He's part of the John Boy Media Network. Um, He took some time out of his schedule today to talk to us about the Negro Leagues as we start turning towards Black History Month. Today is February 1st, as you're listening to this, which means that Black History Month is upon us. And this is something that Corwin and I have talked about on the show many times over the years, and um, that is near and dear to Keith's heart. So we thought it'd be a perfect opportunity to carve some time out of our schedules, make something happen, and have a little conversation. So without further ado, here it is. Corbin, okay, your name's right there. I see it's now. it's Josh like Corbin, but different. It is, but not. Yes. Are you <laughs> exactly a Padres that. fan? I am. I'm a new Padres fan. We actually did a whole episode. I was. I'm a Pittsburgh guy through and through. Oh, that's tough. And I just couldn't do that anymore. They yeah, just you lost don't have all a squad. So you picked so, up a, uh, a new squad with a bunch of guys. Yeah. So we actually uh, did a whole episode on finding me a new team that would uh, not break my heart every opening day and uh came down to the padres and well i tried to convince him to go for the cardinals but he was he was too set in his anti nl central ways to go for the cardinals (laughs) no there's been some tough news there but then the cardinals get arenado and it's like maybe i (laughs) should no it's just making me feel it even worse it's like i just i couldn't imagine being a i couldn't be imagine rooting for that right now it's just oh yeah it's filthy yeah, we are going to definitely have to talk about that trade together at some point. Yeah. Uh, all right. Anyway, um, I guess let's go ahead and get into it. So uh, we are joined today uh, with uh, our, our first guest in a, in a while. Uh, we are joined by a member of John Boy Media, one of the co-hosts of uh, Pinstripe Strong. We're joined by Keith, Keith McPherson. Welcome to the show. Thanks Welcome. for having me, guys. What's up, Josh? What's up? Not... Not would you say Darwin? It's like Darwin, but it's Corwin, not yeah. not Darwin. It's basically whatever you want to call me, I'm okay with because I've gotten it all before. Core, core, Josh and Core. Just don't let my mom hear you; she'll freak out. <laughs> yeah, he'll respond to anything. He's easy. Uh, so first off, Keith, thanks for uh, thanks for spending part of your Sunday with us. Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. Uh, I appreciate you guys reaching out. Uh, I know you guys saw some of the tweets that I sent out about Black History Month, about baseball, about some of the black heroes in baseball, the Negro Leagues. Uh, I did some stuff with John Boy Media last year, and I wasn't sure if I was going to do it again. And then I put a couple tweets out saying I might do it. And uh, the response was great. And part of that response was, you know, you guys reaching out, asking to have me on the pod, which I appreciate. So let's do it. Of course. And this is the perfect day to do it, because today... Uh, January 31st, when we're recording this, this will come out February 1st, the first day of Black History Month. Today, January 31st, is Jackie Robinson's birthday. Perfect. You and know. it couldn't be a better day to have a conversation about the Negro Leagues as in general, what that part of history means and what we can expect and hope for and how we can better interact with baseball history as we look towards baseball's future. So this That's is a the great kind of day planning we do here. You know, we yeah, set this luck. all up months in advance, planning this all out to record on Jackie Robinson's birthday, set it all up for you fans, put the extra legwork in, you know? Hey, 
it, sometimes the universe just lines up like that, you know? Everything happens how it's supposed to. So so let me start off by asking, because we, we Corwin and I have talked about uh, the Negro Leagues quite a bit on the show. I went to the Negro League uh, Baseball Museum. Nice. Oh, geez, must have been two years ago now. That feels weird. Um, I uh, I, I'm, wearing, I'm wearing my Kansas City Monarchs jersey I got there. Um, so it comes up pretty frequently. What is your um, level of interaction with the Negro Leagues personally? So for me, honestly, I'm still learning a lot about the Negro Leagues. Um, yes, well, yesterday. Actually, I'll tell you some, something about yesterday. But last year, like when I said, you know, I did some John Boy Media stuff for Black History Month. One of the topics that I wanted to hit on was the Negro Leagues, how long they were around what great baseball players were in the Negro leagues that didn't get into MLB, you know, who played in the Negro Negro leagues that came into the MLB. So I started just researching some articles. I remember John boy, like, you know, paid for some articles and we were, we were both kind of reading them this time last year. Cause we were trying to figure out something to do around baseball and black history month without just being like Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier. I'm like, let's go a little deeper than that. Um, you know, I've watched some documentaries and stuff and, you know, I said I'll talk to you about yesterday. Yesterday, I actually was on the phone with Bob Kendrick, the president of the Negro Leagues Museum. Oh, so Bob. we talked for a little while and, you know, we're going to set up a podcast kind of similar to this on Zoom, you know, just to talk through some things. And I think he'll be able to educate me better than anyone else, being as he's a prez and he's the guy that gives the tours. And I'm, I'm sure you guys have seen him. He was just with, um, you know, Stool Presidente. They did, you know, the Barstool Fund, helping out the Negro Leagues Museum. And yeah, so I would say I'm not too deep into the historical stuff, but I am learning more and I want to learn more um, so that I could use my platform to educate some of the younger people and people that don't that don't even know or not even thinking about this stuff. Because we saw last year in 2020, it was 100 years of the Negro Leagues and we finally saw MLB celebrated. We saw uh, Bob Kendrick on ESPN. We saw a lot of different things with CC Sabathia. Um, he had had a whole like, you know, the roots of flight clothing line celebrating the Negro leagues. I think we even saw like Aaron Hicks and John Carlos Stanton of the Yankees wearing the shirts. So I was, you know, just trying to get my information up. And now here we are this year, uh, 2021. I think it's just, you know, perfect time to, to use Twitter, Instagram, YouTube uh, podcasts to kind of just like, you know, enlighten people and, and shed some light on the Negro leagues, the past and uh, the history of baseball for people that love baseball. I feel like this is stuff that you should know. It's crazy how we were just yesterday talking about exactly that, about, you know, having Bob spread his word to, to more and more and how important it is to kind of get his message out there to fans that otherwise wouldn't know about these kinds of things going on. Wouldn't know about that history of the sport. Cause what's crazy about, Bob Kendrick and Bob Kendrick gets brought up on this podcast all the time because I love Bob Kendrick. Uh, he's the guy that got me into the Negro Leagues. I heard him talking about Satchel Page, which was one of those names that like, because if you're a baseball fan, you know who Babe Ruth is, you know, you know who Lou, Lou Gehrig is, you know who some of the famous people in today are, whether they're on your team or not, you know who Jackie Robinson is. You might have heard of Satchel Page, you might have heard of Josh Gibson probably not a lot. And I, and it's crazy because I, you know, I would think back to like my high school history classes and I would think about how we all learned at some point in high school history, or we should have that Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier, but it oftentimes felt like those stories were in a vacuum. Like one day Jackie Robinson popped out of the earth and then was a good baseball player. 
and then joined the Brooklyn Dodgers. And mm-hmm. it completely skips past the fact that he was a part of a league that had existed for over 20 years by the point in which he had actually joined up and a league that would end up lasting about another 10 years after he had left. And that that league is what offered an environment where he could play baseball at a very high degree and get the recognition that would end up leading to him being on the Dodgers and all these crazy stories about the people who were involved in it and the revolutions that, that, uh, or evolutions that, well, both really, that the Negro Leagues ended up leading to an MLB, I got through Bob Kendrick. And it's crazy to me that Bob Kendrick isn't an employee of Major League Baseball. Because in my mind, like one of the saddest things for me about this year is that for the 100th anniversary of the Negro Leagues, we didn't get fans in the stands. Yeah. Because if we're not going to get it in high school history class, the only place we're going to get it is at the games. The only way we're really going to get, here's the teams. And, you know, we've had, we've talked a bunch on, on, on the show about different things that like, you know, baseball could do to better educate fans about it. You know, it, it, it seems like a, such a great setup to have like, you know, here's all the teams from New York. One weekend, like we have players weekend, we'll have the Yankees, wear New York black Yankees jerseys and we'll have the Mets wear New York Cubans jerseys and we'll have the Phillies wear Philadelphia stars jerseys. And you could have the fans get an understanding of not just here's what the Negro leagues were. Here's the teams that were in your area. Yeah. And here's what they were about. And having Bob Kendrick be a guy that could travel around, do what he does already, but do it under the gravitas of MLB historical executive or some shit like that, where it's got that MLB title to it, and he's not just doing it as the president and executive of the Negro League Baseball Museum. He's doing it as that and a representative of Major League Baseball. Seems like such a slam dunk opportunity if MLB wants to get behind it. And that's the kind of shit I'm like, because Bob Kendrick, I'm so excited to listen to you when you guys get him on, because I love listening to him talk so much. He He is everything that baseball history should be about. He is fun, he is nice, he is engaging, and he knows absolutely everything. Yeah, I'll say this about MLB. Like, you said it's a slam dunk idea, right? Like, you just basically spoke to the idea, and nobody's going to object. Like, that sounds like a great idea. But MLB has a bunch of great ideas that they don't move forward on. They're slow. Um, If you guys can remember back in, like, 2013, 2014, we weren't allowed to cover the games the way that you're seeing people like myself and John Boy and John Boy Media cover baseball. It literally wasn't allowed. They had BAM and they basically blocked anyone. You couldn't even make a GIF of a home run swing and post it on Twitter without getting flagged or someone alerting it. Because in the beginning of, you know, the Internet kind of starting where people could clip videos and put them on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, where like the video component changed in social media. MLB took the stance of, no, this is our content. This is our league. This is our videos, you know, all rights. And you know how they'll say like all rights uh, or copyrights. This is, you know, MLB property. They took the stance of we're going to get in front of this and not let people, you know, make brands or profit off of our stuff, which was kind of detrimental to the league because NBA wasn't doing that. NFL wasn't doing that. And now we see that these young kids love the NBA, love the NFL, and they're, they're, kind of getting into MLB now because we have people out there like 
Barstool, Foolish Baseball, uh, Fuzzy, some other guys, you know, alongside of the, you know, bunch of us at John Boy Media that do it. Um, what I'm saying is uh, we just got to this year and MLB decided to honor the records of the Negro Leagues. We just got that announcement a, a, a month ago, a couple of weeks ago that, OK, now MLB will honor these records and they're they're doing the research and the deep dives. And honestly, there's no way for them really to get all the records and all the information. Um, I think I just saw something recently, you know, with Hank Aaron's passing where they said, you know, Hank Aaron was playing. um you know, in a, in a tournament somewhere for the Negro leagues. And they said he hit a home run a day, uh, every day he hit a home run. So it was like seven days, but there was like no records of it. There was no digital records of it. I guess someone might've wrote it in a notebook and it might've got published in a paper, but those things are hard to find. MLB should hire someone like Bob Kendrick slam dunk. Obviously, if they are now celebrating the hundred years of the Negro leagues, if they are now recognizing the records and recognizing those players and recognizing the league as a legit baseball league, why not hire someone like Bob Kendrick? The guy is, he's magical. The way he talks about the game, the way he describes things and just the joy that comes out of him when you hear him talk about baseball and tell stories from his childhood all the way to now, he's like the perfect liaison. Um, but don't expect MLB to make the right decisions or do the right things. They don't even know whether they want to keep the DH in the NL or not, or if they want this expanded postseason. It's always going down to like negotiations or money. It's never just like, let's just do the right thing for the fans in the game. And the fact that they're now starting to, the fact that they're, they're recognizing the Negro Leagues as a major league is a great first step. And I'm excited to see, I'm not, hopeful because major league baseball is not good at this, but I'm excited to see the possibility of what they end up doing with that going forward. Because like you said, if they invest actual resources into taking, finding old records of these games that we all know existed, you know, and putting them into this database and collecting them, I think for one, it's always better to have a complete account of history when it comes to the great achievements that are getting overlooked over the course of history, like the Negro leagues were, but also I think MLB has this weird thing about it where they're trying to apply the same standards for getting into the hall of fame mm -hmm. to Negro league players as they were to major league baseball players. And that's bullshit. Yeah. Because first of all, what those two leagues had to experience are so wildly different that trying to set that same bar makes absolutely no sense. And second of all, we have such incomplete, like uh, Josh Gibson, who was a, a catcher, played for a bunch of teams, Negro League players bounced around a lot of teams just based on cash flow at the time, uh, prominently of the Homestead Grays and the Pittsburgh Crawfords, um, is said to have hit over 800 home runs. On record, in actual game accounts, I think we have a total of like 200-something of them from actual game accounts, which means that there's somewhere around 600 Josh Gibson home runs that by all accounts of what we've heard in the oral history of Josh Gibson all happened, but we don't have the, the on-paper awareness of that I think, for one, is going to make Josh Gibson look better going forward, but that's the story for a lot of these guys. And that's not their fucking fault. No. And if there's people that existed throughout the, the Negro Leagues that did anything mildly remarkable on paper, 
chances are what they don't have on paper is even better than that. And the fact that this is a museum, more so than anything else, the Hall of Fame, who gives a shit? Put them in. These are stories that got overlooked for decades by baseball. Do your part. There's nothing wrong with honoring people who went through some, some, something so much worse, more difficult, and better for the game than putting them in the Hall of Fame and letting them have their, their, their moment and their spot in history. I, I think not having those tangible stats present is not the detriment that so many people we hear, you know, making it up to be. Okay, we don't have, you know, the pen on paper, the written stats updated the way that we do now, obviously. Yes, records were better kept in MLB back in that day than the Negro Leagues. We know this. These are the facts. They're not arguable. But you're taking so much away from the history of the game by not including past legends that do have these fantastic storybook careers and have these fantastic tidbits of information that give so much depth to the history of baseball. What's the detriment to including these guys into the hall when they only bring color, both literally and figuratively, and just they add such a richness to the written and spoken history to the game. There's nothing that it is detracting from guys who have made it in on you know the written stats that we had available it's only allowing a broader spectrum of this quote-unquote history and, and allows for these kinds of stories to be continued once that they are once they are forgotten by the guys who lived them and we're running out you know we've seen hank aaron pass this you know a few days ago now and we're losing out on these guys who experienced this firsthand they need to be included now or their window of opportunity to be entered into the hall is severely shrinking. Yeah. And, and when we're talking about the hall of fame, right. We're talking about telling the story of baseball, telling the game. You want to be able to bring a child in that loves baseball at age six, seven, and start to show them like the history of the game and make them really fall in love and make them really feel like there's such a world of baseball for them to learn. And, the, the Hall of Fame we're seeing now with just this past week, no one inducted to the Hall of Fame. And the conversation around that is like, yo, the writers that are voting are turning the Hall of Fame into something it was never meant to be. Are we talking about these guys that were the best baseball players? Or are we talking about the era that they were in, the steroids era? Or are we talking about their Twitter account or what their political stance is? Or if this guy's a jerk? Or are we talking about cheating? Are we talking about one of the best hitters we ever saw cheating? Because now we just saw a whole team cheat using technology, and that's okay. But now we're keeping a guy out of the Hall of Fame that you cannot tell the story of the game without what he did. Um, now talking about telling the story of the game with these, you know, Negro League players, and you know, you speak it on, you know, Hank Aaron. These guys are passing. We got to get these guys on record. Tell us some of the stories because there were no cameras, there was no social media. There was no digital record. You know, like I said, this stuff was written on paper, maybe in some newspapers. Those newspapers have disintegrated by now. Um, it's, an, it's an interesting thing to, to talk about Major League Baseball, the Hall of Fame, the past, the present, because it always just comes back to MLB not doing the easy things, not doing the slam dunk things, always making it harder for themselves, which in turn, you know, like literally makes it harder to grow the game, 
get fans interested, uh, you know, get people to love the game, get this new audience, these younger kids into the game. They just consistently count against themselves. Speaking of that, because one of the things that makes me furious and so incredibly sad every time I think about him, 2006 was the last time a Negro League baseball player got put into the Hall of Fame. 2006, 15 years ago, was the last time they put a Negro League baseball player in the Hall of Fame. Now, and they who was did that? that. They put 13 players in at the time. I actually, I think I have a list up. Not to put you on the spot. I'm just thinking about it. Like, that was a long time ago. I graduated high school 2006. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, 15 players, how many did you say? 13, I believe. Ray Brown, Willard Brown, Andy Cooper, Frank Grant, Pete Hill, Biz McKee, Effa Manley, who was the owner of the Newark Eagles, I want to say. Um, Jose Mendez, Alex Pompez, Composey, Luis Santop, Mule Suttles, Ben Taylor, Cristobal Torriente, Saul White, and uh, J.L. Wilkinson, and Judd Wilson. Now, why, why was that done in, in that one year, that like group of guys? Because Buck O'Neill who was the founder of the Negro League Baseball Museum and was a longtime player and manager of the um, uh, Kansas City Monarchs. I'm wearing the goddamn jersey. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I paused to think of it. Um, he worked with the Veterans Committee to get them to add a bunch of overlooked players at the time, which was great. Buck O'Neill was also on the ballot. And they didn't vote him in. He couldn't get nine votes, nine out of 12 votes. He couldn't get nine votes, nine fucking votes to let the man who signed Ernie Banks, who, who was the first black coach in MLB history, who was the first black scout in MLB history, who founded the Negro League Baseball Museum, who was a great player and a great manager for 12 years and worked with them in this project to find overlooked ball players, they didn't vote him into the Hall of Fame. Now that's infuriating for like 9,000 different reasons, but that's the point, is that baseball, for whatever reason, can't get its head out of its own ass when it comes to doing the easiest thing possible. Here's a man who devoted his entire life to telling the story that baseball itself has overlooked willingly for years who wanted nothing and didn't even really push very hard to get himself into the Hall of Fame. He always said that there was uh, more deserving people than him, which is a very kind thing to say. I'm not sure it's true. He's a very deserving person. Uh, and they, they opted not to. And he died that year. That yeah. was it. He died a few months after that. And whether they put, and we've talked about this when uh, Dick Allen died, I think. Whether they put these guys in the Hall of Fame after their death or not, if they do, all well and good, sure. They never got to see it. Mm -hmm. That's a big deal. Getting that recognition. like, like, And the same thing happened a few years ago with Minnie Mignoso. Minnie Mignoso, who played for the New York Cubans, who was, and he, got, he didn't get put in the Hall of Fame because they're like, oh, he didn't play long enough in Major League Baseball. Fuck you. He spent his time in the Negro Leagues because you wouldn't let him in. Yep. 
and you let him die without seeing that recognition that he deserves. And I don't get why baseball can't get its head out of its ass and say, this is our history. We are not proud of it. And here is what beautiful things happened as a result of our callousness. And we're going to put that on display for you so that you can appreciate their stories and understand our history. And it's, and they just don't, they just don't. Yeah. It's funny. You mentioned uh mini, uh, Mini, Mini Minoso's name just came up in conversation, similar to how we came together on this pod. I put some tweets out and uh, I do a Nets podcast with a young man that goes to Fordham University. His name's Hudson Flynn. And he goes, yo, I want in on this. I just researched Mini Minoso. And like, like if, if you need some help, like that's a guy that I want to talk about. I'm like, yeah, you and I will connect and we will tell his story and we could do it in a one minute, two minute video. We could do it in a podcast, something because people need to know about this. How crazy is it that you hold something against someone that they weren't allowed to change? Like the fact that he didn't play in Major League Baseball long enough is held against him and he wasn't allowed. It doesn't make any sense. And that's the thing about baseball, man. Um, with history, I, I say to people a lot of times, art imitates life. And with baseball, baseball is art. And baseball, you know, it, it reflects what was going on in society, what was going on in the country. And it's still, you know, there's still these like old buttoned up guys in baseball that are saying no, whether they're the voters, whether they're in the front offices. It's just like, stop with all the gatekeeping. Tell the truth and tell the story and let us all learn and enjoy and make whatever we want out of it. We have the Internet. And people like, you know, the three of us on this podcast are going to take time to tell these stories and take time to shed some light on these things. Why? Why is it on us to do that as fans that love baseball and also people that just like care? That's all it is. You know, that should be coming from the top. And it's just crazy how MLB can come down on these former players for, hey, you don't have enough service time in MLB. You don't have the MLB statistics to be worthy of a consideration because we told you you couldn't play in the MLB. We already kept you from playing. <laughs> now we're going to keep you from getting recognition. And it's just a double standard that, you know, for a casual fan, it's not something you think about. You know, you, you watch 162 games a season, your mind's focused on winning a pennant or, you know, signing a free agent or, you know, if you're from Pittsburgh, not hanging yourself after watching a game. You're not worried about the old history of, of the game and these old players that you've never heard of because they're not in the hall, they're not talked about, and they're not going to be talked about because of the first two reasons. And it's just this negative feedback loop of being forgotten. And, you know, that's what uh, – oh, and I'm not going to start rambling, but that's what we're, we're here to talk about, here to try and change. And it's like Corey and I were talking about this the other day uh, because, again, we talk about Bob Kendrick all the time, <laughs> and uh, we are very jealous that you're going to talk to Bob Kendrick later. Um, and as much – Bob Kendrick, even throughout the pandemic, has been flying all over the country, doing talks, going on podcasts, going on TV, going on radio shows – because he's an amazing person. That's what he does. And what's so crazy about MLB is that their Twitter account has more outreach than all of Bob Kendrick's out outreach attempts put together. And it's no disrespect on Bob Kendrick. The man's doing everything. 
I am like astonished. She has the time and energy to do all this shit. But that's that's what it comes down to. A small effort from them because of who follows them, how many people follow them, what their platforms are like. That's the level of outreach that they're going to end up having from doing the small stuff. Man, <laughs> I actually am coming up on two years since I was in the MLB offices interviewing for a job with their social media team. And uh, I was the first person to interview. I, I got to lead off. Um, I thought that, I mean, I didn't think I had the job in the bag, but I thought I had a great chance to land the job. This job was specifically looking for someone that could help uh, MLB brand, but also really help MLB and their players. It was specifically like player social media because we all know that, you know, the players could be out there more. The NFL and the NBA players are out there every day tweeting and posting so much that news stories come just off of the players' tweets and interactions in Instagram comments. So I interviewed for that position and I interviewed with the whole social team. And I, I love that I got to lay eyes on the people that are behind the scenes at MOB working on their Twitter, their Instagram and the content that comes out of it because they don't have a clue, in my opinion. And I'm sure I'll rendezvous with them again. I also was in the MLB fan cave in 2014, sitting in MLB offices, the old MLB offices at 245 Park. They're now at 1217 Avenue of Americas, uh, not far from the new um, MLB flagship store, which is awesome if you get a chance to come into the city and check that out. But what I'm saying is like, you know, I have uh, I've been blessed to get an interesting perspective. Uh, I was you know, a paid participant of MLB in 2014 and worked um, directly with the MLB on the MLB fan cave project as one of the cave dwellers. I got to represent the Yankees as a cave dweller. Then I went on and, you know, started my career in social media and in the digital world. And then things came back around where I interviewed at MLB again. And I'm thinking I'm a shoe in. I know people in the building. I was the first one to interview and thank God I didn't get that job because not long after I ended up um, you know, crushing the 2019 baseball season, meeting John Boy and Jake and just being a fan of theirs. Fast forward, we get to 2020 and I'm hired by John Boy Media. But what I'm saying is, man, like it's funny you mentioned MLB Twitter. Like I watch what they do on social media and I just have an eye where I'm like, hey, they don't have a clue. And they're also scared. They're also they're not going to try some different things. They're not going to say certain things. And like you talk about the reach that they have and the power that they have. Yeah, they could be doing a lot more, but don't don't uh don't hold your breath waiting on that type of stuff from MLB. It's just not going to happen. We'll lock out before you see any changes with stuff like that. It's just amazing how far in the past the mindset is mm-hmm. in baseball. And just both in the MLB amongst the players, amongst, you know, a majority of the fans at this point, it's just we are living 30, 40 years in the past and no one no one is going out of their way to make a change in any meaningful way. You know, players are asking for it. Younger fans are asking for it. The people who are the future of baseball are all screaming it from the mountaintops. And MLB is just kind of sitting back like, I don't know. I don't really want to piss off these 75-year-old fans that just sit and watch the game all day. Like, there are two more years. (laughs) You're 100% correct about the fans because the average baseball fan, and we know this from watching games like and some of the commercials and stuff, they say like the average baseball fan is like 45 to 65-year-old white guy. But 
That's not how the game is going to grow. That is not how the game is going to evolve and change. And it sucks because, you know, you see guys like Fernando Tatis as you're wearing a San Diego Padres hat. The kid is a star. And we haven't had a star like this until Ken Griffey Jr., who we actually just saw MLB hired to work on things like diversity, inclusion, growing the game, and I don't know, um, urban communities, stuff like that. But when you look at Fernando Tatis Jr., you know, at John Boy Media, we love Fernando Tatis Jr. Like, expect to see some stuff with us treating that kid as if he's, you know, our LeBron. Mike Trout, we know, gets compared to LeBron, but Fernando Tatis has everything. And he has the power to, like, get the younger generation, like, really excited about baseball, to have a superhero like him in the game that's got the, the flair, the hair, the swag, and is actually, like, a freak like <laughs> this guy could be playing probably football or basketball but he's playing shortstop he can hit for power he can do there's nothing he can't do but MLB I don't think MLB is going to get behind him because you know he he swung on a 3-0 pitch and hit the ball out against the Rangers in a meaningless game out of you know a 60 game season and a bunch of people shook their finger at him and said no that's it's not how we do things around here he needs a haircut we don't like that guy and it's just like counterproductive. Like, what are we doing? Hey, can we go back to uh, comparing Fernando Tatis to Ken Griffey and Mike Trout? And just focus on that for the next hour or so. Like, yeah, just that's a whole coming. can of worms. If you want to really open that one, <laughs> and you know, it sucks because you you see these kind of players come out and you see them make an impact, and you see fans just swarm to their um, just them as a player and just them as an icon and and inspiring younger players. You know. Kids want to be Fernando Tatis. They want to have that kind of swagger when they approach the plate. They want to strut like him when they hit a home run. And then you see his manager come out and, and verbally accost him during a press conference. You see him being forced to apologize for making a play, making a difference, and is celebrating it because of these quote-unquote unwritten rules that are to some people and to you know a lot of people in charge the – the foundation of what it means to be a baseball player. And oof, I mean, we've had countless episodes where we've talked about these unwritten rules and, you know, we talked about it after that specific instance. And it's, it's crazy to me how we can be stuck so far in the past. We can see the outcry about, you know, all of these different topics and specifically talking about this, about these unwritten rules where it's making the game more difficult to watch. Why? Why are we looking at, you know, El Nino and saying, hey, this kid needs to sit down and shut up and earn his respect before he can do things like this and learn what he can and cannot do. And then we're going looking around like, why does nobody want to watch baseball? Why do the kids not want to watch us? What's wrong? Can I, can I cut in before you – so, like, perfect example, right? They trashed this guy for hitting a home run on a 3-0 pitch because, like, that's not what we do. That's disrespectful. MLB is this buttoned-up gentleman's game. Please, when arbitration comes, if he's one home run short of what they expected him to get to and he didn't swing at that pitch, he will get undressed in front of the courtroom for why they shouldn't pay him what he's owed. You got to go out there and you got to get your numbers and get your stats and get your wins. He's trying to win the game. He's trying to make sure that game is out of reach. 
I don't care about these unwritten rules. He doesn't have to respect his opponent. When you look at these other leagues, like these other leagues, they don't respect. These guys get dunked on. They get walked over. They're not, they're not respecting their opponent. These guys score a touchdown. They put a peace sign in your face and then they dance. They dance in baseball. All, all this kid did was hit a majestic home run on a three Oh pitch pitch better. Pitch better before you even get to that situation. Pitch better. And that's all I had to say about that. That like John Boy is another if you if you guys get a chance to talk to John Boy, like he did his whole breakdown, and it's gonna be a saga as it as like El Nino continues, like as Nando's like legacy continues, he's gonna harken back to some of these moments with him that he's already broken down. And we're we're gonna push this kid, we're gonna pump this kid. He's I mean, we see it with Acuna. We see it with Ozzy Albies. These guys who make game-changing changes to Juan franchises. Soto, yeah. Randy Arozarena. Man, I love the the Latin explosion that mm-hmm. has happened in baseball over the last 10, 15 years. We needed it. We absolutely needed it. These guys grow up playing with milk cartons as gloves and in the dirt and crates as, you know, first base second base, third base, these guys, they learn to play the game with flair and swag and bat flips and struts. And like, that is amazing. And that has Mm -hmm. brought a whole different audience into baseball. And then we even see with the world baseball classic, which we missed obviously with the pandemic and stuff like that. But when that comes back, you know, it's going to be very interesting to see, is it Puerto Rico? Is it the Dominican? Is it Cuba? Or is the United States going to figure out how to win it again, which we should. But, I mean, I love what we're seeing with the uh, Latin explosion in baseball. Um, not to be confused with, you know, the African-Americans in baseball, because I, I did some stuff last year for John Boy Media where I said, name a, name a black third baseman. And a lot of baseball people that I'm, I'm friends with or that I know on Twitter, they were like, yo, that was a great question. I was stumped for a while, and I could only think of one. So I gave people three, but then a lot of people in the comments were like, Miguel Andujar, uh, Rafael Devers. I'm like, no, 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 no. Those are not African-Americans. Those, those guys came to America from the Dominican, from Cuba, not to be confused with like black people like myself that are natives. Like I am from America. Like if uh, I have to wear a flag, I can't put on a Haitian flag, a Dominican flag, a Cuban flag. I have the American flag to rep. I'm from America. Same thing. Name, name, name a black catcher. Yeah, that's another one we were gonna we were gonna explore, and I was like, I'll save it for next year. I don't I don't know the answer. Uh, oh, I think yeah. I think the last time we had a black catcher was speaking of two thousand six. I think it was also like two thousand six. It's been a long time. Uh, the guy Maxwell from the A's that was the first MLB player to take a knee wasn't he a catcher or did he play first base? I think he I think he was a catcher and first baseman. That's actually a great question. I'm not sure. It's like asking, you know, name a, a black goalie or, you know, a black hockey player. It's it's unicorns. But, you know, PK speaking Subban. of this, like all these this like Latin explosion in baseball, like Josh, where did they learn to watch? Like, where did they learn this from? Where did they get this baseball experience? Yeah, it's the Negro Leagues. Bruce Maxwell. Oh, you can't see that. Yeah, there he is. Bruce Maxwell. Count it. That's that's one. Well, there's our guy. It's okay. Segue for the ages, but no, you know, no big deal. <laughs> no, but uh, you know, going back to the idea of, of the flashiness and of Fernando Tatis Jr. and kind of like embracing that, that's, I mean, that's 
one of the other critical parts of Negro League history that led to baseball getting so popular. The reason we have so much of a like the one of the main reasons that Latin American countries are largely very much so into baseball is because of the Negro Leagues. Because during the winter seasons, when it was tough to play ball up in uh, North America because it was so cold, a lot of these guys still needed money because there's just not enough money to tide you over through the winter like there was with baseball, with, uh, with MLB, that they went down and did tours throughout Latin America. And that's how the game got popular, by Negro League teams going down there during the winter and playing in the Dominican Republic, playing in Puerto Rico, playing in Venezuela, playing in all the countries that we think of as baseball places – those are the places that the Negro League teams went. That's how that ended up getting popular. And they also went to Japan. That's a big reason why. Now, base, MLB also did some, you know, Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig went to Japan as well. But largely as a result, though, of the Negro Leagues going there first, you know? And what, one of the, the wildest parts about it is that you got a lot of Negro League players who ended up staying down in Latin America when they went on their trips over to there because they got treated better. And for one thing, that's part of the story of this nation. And for another thing, that's part of what ended up growing the game so much is that they, we had other nations that were going to treat our stars of the game. And even if they weren't stars at the time, even just our good players better than we were. And it's like the story of the Negro leagues. It was born out of something horrible and ended up, making something kind of beautiful in that kind of way where now the, the Dominican Republic is a baseball haven. Curacao is a baseball haven and a large, that is so indebted to these Negro league players going there and spreading their joy, their pride and their, their talents with those nations. And that's why it's great seeing these, these Hispanic ball players we have now, because even that's going to get tied back to the Negro leagues. Yeah. It's a beautiful game. It's a beautiful game. And uh, I, I say this to people a lot. I say, I, I love baseball. I don't love major league baseball. Mm -hmm. um, I love the game. I can watch any baseball. I can watch five-year-olds play baseball. I can watch, you know, any, any baseball game that comes on. It could be little league. It could be KBO. It could be a throwback game on yes network Yankee classic, but what MLB has done to the game, it just always seems to rub me the wrong way. And it comes from this stance of like, like I say, art imitates life. Like there's just always this like heavy racism that you feel in baseball for like what reason it, it, it's, it's gotta, it's gotta go. When you look at a guy like Fernando Tatis, like I see comments and stuff like the guy needs to cut his dreads. Like I have these dreads. Like <laughs> I, I want to get my dreads as long as Fernando Tatis Jr. That shit looks cool. Like, but why are they saying he needs to cut his hair? Because it's a way to like, like oppress you. It's a way to like, keep their, their foot on you it's their it's a way to like not let you fully express yourself and be yourself and keep you down and when you talked about you know just now like these uh, these players going to other countries and being treated like i don't know just with some kind of respect yeah in america you could be a superstar baseball player and then you got to go drink at the colored fountain you can't even go get a sandwich in a in a diner you get this racially really profiled story. like yeah like like that it's just so wrong, but that is how it's gone on here in America. And I, I tell people all the time, like racism is baked is baked into American culture so much. We don't even realize it. And we we're now realizing the effects it's had over time. And with a game like baseball, baseball still refuses 
to change some of those things. Baseball still refuses to, I don't know, adapt to current times, uh, adapt to, you know, the climate that we're in. And I think they're getting there, but it's just going to take forever. And what they stand to lose is this generation of young fans. Um, I love to see these young white kids with LeBron jerseys, with Steph Curry jerseys that want to be KD, you know, like they're all the Kobe jerseys we see. Right. These these young these young white kids aren't growing up with that like racism. They're not they're You know, they're just they enjoy the game. And uh, I think it's strange that like, you know, they're not as into baseball. And uh, here's a, a segue into a topic uh, that I will be touching on this uh, Black History Month. The amount of players or African-American players in the league in the 60s, 70s, you know, after the color barrier was broken and you get into the 70s. There were a ton of black players. I don't know the exact percentages. I need to look it up, but I know now it's something like 7.8% of African America, African Americans in baseball. And then you got guys like CC Sabathia retiring. 7. Adam 7. Jones, 7.7. Um, Adam Jones uh, is out of the league. Like there's not that many of these mm-hmm. guys left. And whose fault is that? I don't know. There's a lot of different things, right? When you look at America and pop culture, like even me, myself, I always like to tell this story. When I was a kid, my, my next door neighbor, him and his dad played baseball almost every day. Like he took him to the cage. He made him feel, do drills. They would offer me to come. Hey, you want to come? I think I went maybe three times with him. I played center field. I played a little bit of third base. I was a leadoff hitter. I was fast. I could, could get on base. And, you know, I just was a good athlete, but I gravitated towards football and basketball because that's what I saw reflected on the TV. The players are black in the NBA, in the NFL. And then also my friends and family, I have family, right? I went down to Jacksonville, Florida. I remember getting a Sandy Koufax glove at a garage sale and a baseball. I think it was five bucks for the glove and the ball. And I would just come outside in the morning and throw the ball against my grandma's wall field it throw it back I would do that for hours at a time like just chill outside and do that my cousins would come along with the basketball dribbling and say put that baseball down that's for white boys we're going to the court we're about to go hoop and whenever they would come I knew eventually they would come by I dropped the glove and ball and go play basketball nobody wanted to play baseball with me and like that that's got to change uh and I think it can change there's another effect right um art imitates life and art imitates this country the game is passed on from father to son a lot of times. A lot of black kids like myself grew up with no father figure just because of multiple different things um, in this country that we've learned about mass incarceration, uh, the crack era, you know, taking the black fathers out of homes. So if the kids aren't growing up with their dad passing the game on, the game's not getting passed on. They're going out in the street, in the hoods. There's basketball courts in every hood. There's not a baseball field in every hood. And then there's the money factor, right? As you start to come up in baseball, you have to pay for coaching. You have to pay. Like I live in Jersey where it's freezing cold right now. You can't go outside and play. You got to have like a membership to go to, you know, a batting cage or a turf, a place with turf to play. You know, some of these black kids don't come from, money they can't afford to get the the best easton bat or you know get the best equipment or go to showcases so they got to do what they can do which is play outside you can play football all you need is a football and a grass field you can play basketball all you need is one basketball and a hoop which you know are set up everywhere and then lastly what i think affects 
this like lower percentage of African-Americans in baseball right now is the fact that you can go from high school to college in football and be a superstar your freshman year. And everybody knows who you are. If you're a freshman at Ohio State, you're a freshman at Alabama. If you're a freshman at Ohio State and Alabama playing baseball, you might be known in, in the community around there, but you're not on the national stage. Same with basketball. Now we're even seeing basketball. These kids are going to the G League now straight out of high school because they did put the rule where you had to go to college for a year and that changed some stuff up because, you know, we saw guys like Kobe and LeBron go straight from high school to the league. That's the dream. Every young black kid wants to do that. So they, you know, they're gravitating more towards basketball and football because there's like instant gratification. There's instant success. In baseball, you go to college. And, you, you know, you, you play in the college and if you're I don't know, I guess if you're LSU or UNC or Texas, maybe you can be a star in that area. But you, you might not be a nationally known star. And then also you got to go through the grind of the minor leagues. You go through the grind of the minor leagues and it's not promised that you make it. It's not promised that you get there. You know, some guys like a perfect example is Kyler Murray. Kyler Murray is a freak athlete. He, he was drafted first by the Oakland A's. He could have pursued that and probably figured out how to get there. But hey. I have, the op- I have the option to play one year football at Oklahoma, win the Heisman, and be the number one overall draft pick in the NFL, and everybody knows my name. That's what I'm going to do, even at 5'8", <laughs> even at undersi- being an undersized guy that probably would have been you know, better suited in MLB. Now I'm, I'm going to go the NFL route. It's, it's just so much access. You know, access is such a huge thing. You know, Josh and I met working at a, a, a facility that had a, an indoor, indoor field that was domed in the winter. And it was packed year round with middle upper class white kids who would come from all over the East Coast. They'd Outlighter's kid would just, go there. I'm sorry? Mm-hmm. For reference of the, of the, the, the money aspect. Outlighter, ta- where, the pitcher. Where, where was this place? What town? This was Flemington, in uh, Flemington, New Jersey. New Jersey. Okay. It's actually um, nowhere, no Jack reason to Cust, know where it is. Uh, former MLB designated hitter, first baseman. He owns the place, so he ran this whole facility. Well, his dad, Jack Cust, is a uh, son of a very rich man and kind of a dick. Huge dick, Jack. So Cust, yeah, if, if you like Jack Cust, you're, not, you're wrong. You're the worst. His yeah. his office had a wall to wall mural of himself on it, just ridiculous. <laughs> but it's the access of only people with money, only upper class, you know living comfortably you know outside of sports have access to play year-round to get the kind of coaching and the kind of uh you know tangible experience to continue on and when you get to the point where you're playing in college you you know get drafted you don't get drafted you get signed you're playing organized ball for a couple grand a season if you don't have the kind of funds you know in the first place to support yourself through that you're not going to be able to survive trying to work your ass to play baseball. You know, minor league hockey, they get paid a livable wage. You know, basketball, you can play overseas. You can play and make good money outside of the NBA. You could play in the G League making good, livable money. Preparing you can play in yourself college to play. and these alumni will pay you. Baseball. There's boosters that'll yeah. put money in your pocket if you go to the right $100 school. $100 handshakes. <laughs> It's just if you don't have the funds to begin with, the road to get to Major League Baseball is a long, steep climb that's not accessible for the masses. And that's why you don't see, you know, underprivileged people. And unfortunately, 
mostly minorities being able to break into the sport like they can in other sports. You know, obviously Kyler Murray is, you know, a superstar level. Um, uh, what's the word for it? I was doing so good. I'm awful with words. Multi-sport athlete. Multi-sport athlete, an icon for this kind of choice. He's the ninth overall pick in the MLB draft. He's five foot four and a quarter, maybe. <laughs> weighs 106 pounds, soaking wet. You look at him and you think, there's no way he could survive in the NFL getting hit by 350-pound defensive linemen. Adamakin Sue is going to tackle him, pile drive him into the dirt. He's going to kill the kid. Of course, he could, should go to baseball guaranteed contracts being able to build back up that you know uh, hitting ability the fielding ability that you haven't used consistently because you've been playing football and no it's not worth it it's not worth skipping out on you know the ability to go to the nfl because it's it's not the marquee sport anymore it's not it's not it's no longer america's pastime because right. people can't play that there there's so much of the money aspect of it too because the other thing is what is he going to get paid? What's Kyler Murray going to get paid in the MLB? He's going to get paid a signing bonus. It'll probably be a few hundred grand. And then he'll get paid like shit because minor league ballplayers play like shit. I don't know. I think he would have commanded a pretty huge signing bonus to draw. No, no, no. I, 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 I get it. Small I get market. It. Oh, I get it. But, but now, what, exception to what, the is, what is the, the contract, the AAV for the first overall pick in the NFL? Oh, uh, it's ridiculous. 20, 25, 30 million, depending on. on it's the not going to compare. You know what I mean? That that's the real point of it is it's not going to compare. And at that point, you have to make an, you have to make a choice, which is just how long am I going to take this ride for? Am I going to take this ride for where I'm not going to touch the major leagues for four to six years? And then when I do, I'm going to get fucked in my service time. Or do I take a gamble, take the money that I can make now? Because that $35 million or $30 million I'm going to make just in my first year is probably more than I'm going to make in the first six to eight years in the MLB. And then you add in going backwards all of the systemic issues that I'm sure MLB has opened itself up to because it has such a rigid structure and system, the funding levels, the fact that like, you know what? If you get 10 of your friends together and you want to play basketball, one guy needs a ball. You want to get 10 of your friends together and play baseball? 10 guys need mitts. Mm -hmm. You need at least one baseball. You need at least one bat. And then you need to have a place to play that has been maintained. The good but shit thing about basketball for municipalities is that you can pour down concrete, stick a pole in, the, in, the, in it, and then leave that shit alone for like a decade and let it deteriorate. But it's still playable. Kind of. Baseball fields? You need to have someone to trim the dirt. You need to have someone to sorry, trim the grass. You need someone to lay down the dirt. You need someone to, to get the rocks out of there and maintain the bases. All that shit. You need those foul it, lines painted. You need, yeah. And just, and then you add in the... Oh, sorry, go ahead, Corwin. I was just going to throw something in. You finish. No, no. I was going <laughs> to make a longer point. You go ahead. You go ahead. Just for reference, Kyler Murray's rookie contract, first overall pick. Four years, $36 million with a $23.5 million signing bonus, $36 million guaranteed, no signed through his age 25 season. So 26 years old, he's already got money in the bank compared to what he could possibly make until he's, until he's 30 in MLB. Again, look at Aaron Judge. Aaron Judge, who is a superstar in, in the league right now, yeah. and he's going to he's position to make, I think, $12 million this year. Anyway, um, 
That's why I, I love the Ken Griffey Jr. hire for baseball because it's a step forward. And I think baseball is always going to be behind. So I'll take any step forward that they can give us because there's so much that Ken Griffey Jr. is not going to know about what it means to come up through the game now, not even as a black ball player, just as a ball player. I'd also like to see younger dudes like Cabrian Hayes and Tim Anderson get a chance to say, Hey, this is what I experienced coming up through the minors. And I, I don't even think, I think the, the fact that, you know, they're going to try to increase urban outreach is great and all that shit. Tim Anderson, I think comes from Alabama. And the thing is, like, when we talk about Negro Leagues, when we talk about a lot of, like, really esteemed black ball players, a lot of them come from the South. And I don't know what that means in terms of how you approach that outreach. It's usually large, disparate groups of land where it's like, how far apart are people? What's it going to take to bring people together? What's it going to take to support the black communities for baseball down there? It's going to be different than in the urban centers, which are going to have their own issues, which will inherently have more money because there's just more people to draw from. But I want to hear what they have to say about that, because Ken Griffey Jr., he's been out of baseball for 12 years, 13 years. And again, he's still a great ambassador. He's still a dude that we all loved watching growing up, who's going to have so much star power and will do so much good. I'd like to see them take the next step, which is what can we be doing for people who are coming up now as told by people who are just coming up through the system? Where are the gaps in our support now that we can address going forward. And I think that should be a priority for them because they're never going to, you, you, you can't fix today's problems with yesterday's answers. And they got a good route to find today's problems. So what I will say is that I think Ken Griffey Jr. is just the face and the name to announce this thing. Um, the NFL started a, a whole project with Jay-Z and Rock Nation called Inspire Change, which is kind of similar. They're trying to, now they're trying to um, pick up where they went wrong with Colin Kaepernick and what Colin Kaepernick was trying to do. Now they actually, like if you watch the NFL, they've got a few commercials and, you know, they're pretty bold with it. They have like end racism on the referees hats and there's like a bunch of stuff going on, but Jay-Z... Yeah, that's not going to end racism. I remember I remember having my fiance is a white girl. I remember having a conversation with her when we first saw the first game. And I think end racism was in the end zone. And I'm like, that's a lofty request. And that's such a deep thing. Like end racism. I'm like, OK, I guess I, you know, NFL shoot your shot. But like, that's such a deep discussion. <laughs> like, sure. If, if football is going to end racism, it, it would surprise the hell out of me. But it's also funny because it's passive. It's not we're not going to end racism. Yeah, you end racism <laughs> watching this game. Some, <laughs> you're going to see some guy in Kentucky watching this game and seeing that and going, well, I guess might as well. They, you know, listen, they had end racism on the field. They had Deshaun Watson and Pat Mahomes come out and lock arms as a sign of unity between the teams two African-American players and two of the, let's say, top five quarterbacks in the NFL that happen to be black. And the Kansas City Chief fans booed them. Mm -hmm. All the meanwhile, the owners sitting in his box calling them slaves. Right. Referring to, you know, his players as the slave he owns. Yeah. Then, well, I mean, with the Texans, I mean, they're about to lose Watson or they're saying they don't want to trade him. But there's a history with the Texans of racism from Bob McNair, who passed and him even saying, 
can't let the inmates run the asylum. Like, mm-hmm. whoa, what are you talking about, bro? Like, don't even make that equation. That's not good. Um, like, uh, and we get it. We get it that you're the owner, but you don't. These aren't your slaves. You don't own these. Guys. This is not a plantation. This is a football team. Holy, the plantation yeah. met- mentality is is wild to me that we still even have to talk about this stuff. But let me bring it back around. So Ken Griffey is the figurehead. Ken Griffey is, you know, for them to announce it, if they announce this movement in MLB with a, a name like, you know, Inspire Change, like the NFL did, it wouldn't have done it. What they, what the NFL did was announce that we're partnering with Jay-Z and Rock Nation to do this, to do this. And Jay-Z and Rock Nation even helped book the weekend for the Super Bowl. Great. Ken Griffey is going to be the right guy to, to spearhead this, to kick this off. But there are other people that are going to help. The Players Alliance emerged out of 2020 with the black lives matter movement the players alliance came together and you saw guys like mookie betts aaron judge tim anderson cc sabathia uh, jason hayward all on one video talking about racism talking about baseball talking about a bunch of different things and they've been out actually in the streets helping people with food drives giving away clothes giving away coats and they've gone city to city doing that. So I think they'll be involved. And I don't know if you guys remember Ian Desmond's post before the 2020 60 game season came out where he basically said he wasn't going to play because he was going to focus on helping the area that he grew up in him being half black and half white. He was going to build some ballparks and help the community that he was from um, get African-American, young African-American players involved that don't have the means to buy bats, gloves, you know, giving them fields that are always up kept. Make these turf fields that are easy. You make them once, they're lined and they're, they're kept, you know, without all the maintenance. So Ian Desmond's another guy that's involved. I know there's a lot of um, other players that are going to, you know, I guess back Ken Griffey Jr. in this because I was listening to uh, a podcast. If you guys get a chance to listen to, listen to um, – all the Smoke podcast. It's with Steven Jackson and Matt Barnes. It's a basketball podcast, but they had Ken Griffey Jr. on, and he spoke about how much Ken Griffey Sr. helped him. Ken Griffey Jr.'s path, mm-mm. no, like not many young black guys have a dad that makes it an MLB that they get to actually play on the same team, hit home runs in the same day. That's like a one-on-one thing. Ken Griffey Jr.'s path. Ken Griffey Jr. even talked about how his dad's connections with players and, and um, different people in the league helped him make his way through. Not everybody's going to have that. It's funny because I actually I got to write a note because I was just thinking about like CeCe Sabathia and his kid. CeCe Sabathia's kid is one of the top players. He's like 17. He's like one of the top high school players. He's coming up, but he's got the Sabathia name and the Sabathia money behind him. So obviously the athleticism, the, the bloodlines, the genes are there, but he's got everything else there to succeed that like someone like me, a kid coming out of, you know, Monmouth County playing baseball, a single parent household, you know, low income, um, just trying to figure it out on his own. I wouldn't have had the, the same even close to chance as some of these other guys like a Ken Griffey Jr. or, uh, you know, CeCe's son. And I, I, I fully, I believe in Ken Griffey Jr. And I believe that he's going to be doing a lot of great things. I just, I just want baseball for once to do the right thing. And I'm like clinging to this. I am so desperate to see, like the Players Alliance has been one of the best things to come out of last season. And what's great about it is that they do things on the community level, which is where it's going to need to be. Because baseball is so regionalized, which can work to its benefit if you embrace that aspect of it. But that's where it's got to be no matter what. And I'm really hoping that with the Players Alliance doing what they're doing, 
um, and MLB throwing more national support behind whatever um, Ken Griffey Jr.'s initiatives, I guess, is, are going to be. I'm hoping we end up seeing some actual change. The other thing is we're not going to see whatever the changes are going to be. They're not going to be immediate. And we're going to we're going to end up having to have patience for it, which is shit, because, you know, these types of things take time for, to actually take into effect. You know, like we're not going to see we might see five years from now, 10 years from now, a much larger percentage of black ball players in baseball as a result of what they're doing today. But whatever it is that they got up their sleeves, I just hope that they put in the time, energy, and resources to make it effective. Yeah, and I, I mean, and it is going to take time, but it, it is happening already. Look at look at this season, right? We see um, the rookie of the year in the 60-game season in both leagues. We see Devin Williams in the National League, and we see Kyle Lewis in the American League. These guys have the potential to become stars. They're both young black men, and they're African-American men that were born in the States. They didn't defect. They didn't come over here on a boat. They're like These guys are natives. Like They're from here, and they've made it to be rookie of the year as a pitcher, outfielder. These guys are coming. You mentioned Key Brian Hayes. Like These guys are on the way, and there will be more guys on the way if we can get them young, if we can get them excited. Um, we talked about Deshaun Watson quickly, and one thing about Deshaun Watson, his story starts – when he was young, his family was struggling, and Warwick Dunn bought his family a house. Warwick Dunn is a running back from the Buccaneers. And just that little thing made Deshaun Watson, like, obsessed with the NFL, obsessed with, the, with football. And that type of stuff drove him. Like, wait, a football player could buy my family a house? That means I could do that one day? Now, when you see the player alliance showing up in different places, right? Imagine being a kid in the hood, and you roll up. Uh, to this thing that's going on. They're giving out food and jackets and, and I don't know, just a big truck rolls up and Jason Hayward pops out and shakes your hand and signs something for you and gives you something. Then you, you take that with you. That could, that could spark that in a young man. That could be that young man's spark to say, I want to be like that too. And we're going to get there. We're, we're definitely going to get there. I was just watching um, something from the, the, I guess, MLB network. And I laughed because they talked about how the Negro League would scrimmage against MLB and the white players wanted to play against the black players. They didn't care if they were white. They didn't care if they were black because being white didn't make you superior than us and being black didn't make you inferior than us. Let's line it up and play the game and see who wins. And they were saying a lot of times the black players were kicking their ass and the white players enjoyed it. They said Babe Ruth loved playing against black players. Yes, because it's competition. If you are an athlete, you want to play against the best. I don't care if they're black, white, green, red. Like, we want to play against the best competition. That's what makes it fun. And mm -hmm. for Major League Baseball, we need to get more African-American players involved, more just young players, period, involved, and let the best of the best rise to the top. I laugh because uh, one of the players said that the owner of the Detroit Tigers ended up calling it off. And I think they said the MLB commissioner at the time called it off because it started to look bad for MLB. It's like, okay, you do a seven game series with, uh, with the Negro leagues and, and the series can't get to seven games because they've already lost the first four games. And they said, they said the Tigers owner said, call it off. Those Negroes can play. And like, that wasn't offensive. Uh, I think he actually used the other N word and you know, they, they took that as a compliment. Like, yeah, let's line it up and get a, give us our respect how we can get our respect between these lines because 
outside of these lines, you're not going to give us any respect at all. Yeah, I know it's a different sport, a different scenario, but, you know, from my history at Penn State, the players were the ones that integrated the team. They refused to play. They were going to sit out of, mm-hmm. I think it was the Cotton Bowl, a major bowl game, if they didn't allow the black players to come along and allow them to play with the team. And I think that's one of the big steps we need to see from the current MLB players, not just the Cabrian Hayes, not just the Tim Anderson, even though you know we're using these guys as an example every time. We need the players to step up and say, hey, we need MLB to be more accountable with this kind of thing. We have the leverage as players. You know, The MLB Players Association, whether they like it or not, needs to be the ones to step up and say, hey, we have the leverage to make this happen. We're not going to allow this to continue to be the kind of inequality, you know, unequal environment that we've been playing in for decades now since integration. We need this change to happen and we need it to happen now. And we just need to find those voices, those leaders to step up and support the rest of, you know, the, the MLB players, the rest of the minority players who are already speaking up and, and making their voices heard. We just need it to be a collective communal effort. The fact that MLB, which is an anagram for BLM, didn't make more of a thing out of that this summer and really throw weight behind the movement is also crazy to me. Again, right fucking there. It's right fucking there. Um, But instead, over the course of this last season, you had guys like Trevor Bauer, Dustin, BLM off the mound because he wanted to shout out his fucking beer sponsor. So... Yeah, I, I mean, that whole thing. So, like, we had the opening weekend, and BLM was on the mound, I think, across the league. Yeah. And then a week later, it turned into, like, ads. Like, they had, like, logos of, like, I'm trying to think of what. There was, there were just, they were, like they put. Camping World and, like, goofy <laughs> shit. So, it was, like, it made it seem ingenuine. It's, like, okay, you did it in the beginning just to posture and seem like you're, like, yes, we care about these issues. And then you turned it into a way to make money after that. And then. You know, you see Devin Williams go out there and write BLM on the mound before he pitches. And then, like you said, you see a guy like Trevor Bauer come out there and, you know, he's all about his brand and it's whatever. And it's just like, I don't know, MLB could get in front of it more. I know there was a lot of pushback and there's going to be, you know, MLB's audience is predominantly white. Black people are minorities in this country. And for the most part, black people don't feel included in baseball, so they don't watch. And of course, you're going to hear the opposing people loudly because we have the internet, you know, one ignorant tweet stands out more than the 10 tweets saying, this is great. Awesome. to see MLB putting BLM on the mound, having the players in black lives matter shirt with an MLB logo on it. Like we saw Aaron Boone with, like, I appreciated the stuff like that. Aaron Boone. I didn't know about Aaron Boone. He's got two adopted sons that are young black men. I didn't know that until he was crying on the podium before a game wearing a Black Lives Matter shirt. And Marley Rivera asked him, hey, does this whole Black Lives Matter movement hit harder for you because you have two black sons at home? I'm like, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Me of course. Of, of course it hits him differently. And, uh, you know, we, we saw, I think, um, against, uh, in, against D.C., the Yankees uh, versus Nationals, they had that, like, black rope, like the players were taking a knee and, you know, I actually talked to Brian Cashman on a Zoom call about it. And the Yankees, the Yankees have kind of been quiet around some of this stuff. I, I know I saw the Yankees get attacked this summer. Like, hey, how come you haven't come out and made a statement? All these other businesses and brands and companies are coming out to, to basically make sure people don't think they're racist. 
And uh, I think that the Yankees did a good enough job. And Brian Cashman talked about the work that they done, they, that they've done behind the scenes. And uh, you know, I, I enjoy having these uncomfortable conversations and I've been having these uncomfortable conversations before it got branded by Emmanuel Acho who has a whole thing now, uncomfortable conversations with a black man. I'm like, good. That's how we get progress. Like we have to have these conversations that weren't had before because people didn't like the way they felt having them. Like um, Cashman said they were one of the first, they had him come in and, and uh, on zoom speak to the Yankees team. And they were trying to figure out some things internally. Um, it wasn't really an external thing, but like these things are have happening. These conversations are happening. This podcast is happening. Somebody's going to listen to this and be enlightened. Somebody's going to listen to this and then Google something or research something. And these conversations have to be had by people that love basketball or basketball, by people that love baseball and don't have, don't necessarily, um, you know, have stock in it as far as like, you know, like me being black is of course why I care about these issues, but you guys don't have to care about this stuff. You know, it's big for you guys to use your platform, which you are to, to have these conversations. And uh, you know, we're, we'll get there. Like you said, it, it's going to take time, but we are on the way. I disagree. I think we do need to be the ones stepping up and making this heard. It's, it's not enough to just have minorities speaking up about, hey, we're minorities, we're facing problems, we're facing injustices, hear our voice, you know, hear us complain, complain, you know, help us make a change. That's too easy to just throw by the wayside and just think, no, they don't understand, we face problems too, this, that. There's a billion excuses you can give when it's people different from yourself rising up and, and making themselves heard. It's important for people who come from privilege, who have this natural indicative, you know, who don't face these issues every day to also step up and make their voices heard in any capacity possible to say, no, this does need to change. This isn't okay. You do need to listen. And I think too much has gone by the wayside by just letting it be forgotten, letting it not be discussed, blaming it on other things, other other excuses mm -hmm. when it's up to every person with the capacity to fulfill that. So I know not everyone's going to speak up. I don't expect everyone to speak up. I do hope that more people realize if they have the ability and don't do so, they're falling short of of what should be done and they're 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 not feeding the problem but they are allowing it to persist no you're right and uh thank you for disagreeing because i get i guess i get in my head a lot about that <laughs> completely on one side because i'm a black guy but i have a, I have a friend maggie mm -hmm. she's a she's a huge uh cubs fan and you know i met her through baseball stuff but, you know, she follows me on Instagram, Twitter. And when, you know, the George Floyd killing happened and, you know, the protests, you know, I was out in the street protesting and I was sharing that and documenting um, and then even sharing my experience and racism I've felt and stuff. And um, I put out a, a post where I was like, you know, black people didn't create racism, but somehow it's on us to figure out how to stop it, how to end it. And she was like furious. She's like, no, it's not. 
She's like, she's like, I don't agree with that at all. It's not on you to figure out how to stop this injustice. It's not on you to figure out how to like, like, cause these things shouldn't be happening. She's like, it's the opposite. She's like, it's on people like me to stand up and not just watch this stuff go by and use my platform and my privilege to figure out a solution here. She's like, like, that's the reason it hasn't gotten solved, Keith, because black people have been trying to do it on their own with no help. She's like, we need, we need white people to step up as allies, allies and say enough is enough. And she like changed my perspective on it. I was like, yeah, you're right. It isn't on black people to solve something that they didn't create something that like we've just always dealt with and accepted. I think we, you know, we finally started to get to the point where black people aren't necessarily just like turning the other cheek. And I know I had a breakthrough this year, my, myself and my content, because Growing up, I, I grew up in a right uh, in a white area. I went to college with all white kids, and you know, I guess I've always been uh, in different settings. Obviously, I have a black family, so I, I've been in black settings, but I've been in white settings so much where, like, I guess I've learned to assimilate and how to move. And uh, I think I was raised and taught that, like, you know, you don't speak about racism that you faced. You just you just take it and you internalize it and you use it as motivation and you use it as fuel to be successful and to be great. And, you know, we don't talk about those things. Nobody wants to hear that stuff and you don't share your experience. And it's, it's more on you to just be a good example and, and uh, you know, overcome. And I think this year I like something snapped in me when I, when I realized, I think I posted one thing about George Floyd and someone was like, stick to baseball. And then I posted another thing about how, like, I can't take this anymore. You know, I've spent my whole life doing what people told me to do. I went to school. I got good grades. I competed in sports. I, I graduated. I, I got a job. I worked in the corporate world. I left the corporate world. I built my own, you know, brand and things like that. And it's still not enough. I still could go out, get racially profiled. I still go out. I, I get treated certain ways in, in public, in pu public places, my own offices that I've worked in. I get ID'd and held until someone can vouch for me. Apartment complexes that I've lived in. I've been looked at strange and stopped, sir, where are you going? Like I pay to be here. Uh, and something definitely changed in me this year where I realized like you can't internalize that stuff, Keith. You have to speak on it. You have to share it because if you don't, you know, people will think it won't happen. And if, if people look at you as an exception, which, you know, I didn't like, and I definitely got some people out of my followers in Instagram and Twitter that I was like, listen, if you're here just because like, you like to hear me talk about baseball, but you don't want to hear the other stuff like you can go. I don't want to be your token black guy. I don't want to be your exception. I don't want to be, oh, I don't really like black people, but I like Keith because he talks about the Yankees. Like, no, like understand the full like breadth of like who I am and what I am. And then, you know, I, I want you to follow me and, you know, support what I do. But if it's if you're just here uh, for other things and you don't understand that, like I'm a person first and that I've experienced a lot of these things that we're seeing and we're hearing about then like you don't belong here and, and uh like i don't have the time to explain to you or teach you but i am going to use my platform and you should obviously know like where i'm coming from with all this like it shouldn't be a shocker or surprise to anyone you're not a talking head you're not some you know one-dimensional podcast host talking right. about you know you're not reading stats off a page like we do here you're not doing anything you know for them you're a person doing this for you. You have more dimensions to yourself. You need to like, you need your fans and your listeners to accept you for you and then listen to you for baseball rather than we're here for baseball. I don't want to hear another word out of you. Right. Same thing. Willie Mays. 
one of the greatest players of all time, could not buy a house in San Francisco. Ridiculous. <laughs> Makes no sense. Have we sense. talked about that fully yet? Um, we we talked. You and I talked about it when we talked about Hank Aaron the other day, but. That, We've been going for a while, and I'm trying not to chew up too much more of Keith's time because we could literally talk about this shit all day. Um, I'll come on. I'll it, come on another episode. Uh, I got it. I got another. Let's let's give it another five five minutes. We uh, perfect. And we would. We, you you have an open invitation for any time you want to come by. Well, um, I'd like to come back when it's actually baseball season. We'll have some actual baseball to talk about, and then some other things. And I'm sure there'll be a time where we're like, okay, let's reopen the conversation we had before. I, absolutely. Once uh, well, spring training is actually going to start this month. Wow, that's weird. weird. But uh, hey, man, well, once the season gets going, let's talk. Let's talk some Yankees. Let's make Corwin mad. Uh, hey, you know what? I'm fine. You know what? Nah, he's you guys got Tyone. I can talk about Tyone. We can focus on that for an hour and a half. That's OK. So I, I, I want to try to 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 bring it back around um, as we as we close out by asking what Keith, are you hoping to make progress on internally or in your understanding of the Negro leagues or how you interact with baseball as a whole, what, what kind of journey are you looking for as you go forward this year? You know, you, you're here now, you're talking with Bob later. What are you personally looking to, to kind of advance uh, part of you? I mean, for, for me, I just, I just feel like I have a responsibility um, I, I can look at the landscape of Yankees Twitter, of uh, content creators around baseball, and there's not many African-American ones, you know, and I understand that uh, baseball, I love baseball and baseball changed my life. Literally just being a fan of Major League Baseball, I like I wouldn't, so many things came my way just because I, I love the game and I followed the game. And I never, I never stopped when, you know, people told me, baseballs for white boys. I never stopped when, you know, my, you know, my own, I don't know. Like I've, I've, I did feel a lot of that. Like this is a white boys club and I never stopped. I never stopped going to games. I never stopped making content. I never stopped wearing Yankee stuff. I got offended growing up when I would wear my Yankee hat and people were like, you're, you just wearing that for the style or you follow the Yankees. And I'm like, what, what do you want to talk about the game yesterday? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, do I gotta start naming the fucking yeah, roster like, for you? Yeah, like yeah. I'm not just wearing the hat for style, which I understand. Hip hop, you know, Jay Z said he made the Yankee hat more famous than a Yankee can, which isn't true. Um, but what I'm saying is this discussion. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. What I'm saying is uh, is this right with with me doing this content in Black History Month? Now this will be the second year with me talking to Bob, with me talking to you guys. It starts here, right? If you don't know your history, you're bound to repeat it. Um, unfortunately in America, we just saw what happened on January 6th and people harken back to, I think, what was it? The war of 1812. Come on. Like we're, we're seeing stuff happen in present time that can actually like turn the history book back books back and, and it, it parallels in a strange way. So what I don't want to happen is, um, you know, that history to be, you know, people say whitewashed. And there's a lot of history. We, we talked about, you know, curriculums and what you learn in, uh, in you know, high school and public school. And, you know, a lot of the, the history of the Negro Leagues is not going to be taught in school. It's not going to be taught anywhere. And uh, I feel like the game has changed so much in the black family and the black household. Right. The Negro Leagues, people don't realize 
They weren't playing in front of five people. These games were sold out. You couldn't get a ticket because black people wanted it. They wanted to watch baseball. They wanted to watch the game. So let's get that back. Let's get the, let's let's get the whole country back into baseball, into the game. I love the game. I, like I said, I love baseball. I don't love Major League Baseball, but I will do my part as a black man, as a baseball fan, as a concrete uh, content creator, as someone that just is blessed to have a platform. I'm a regular fan, just like you guys. I watch 162 and MLB Network and go to whatever games I can, just like the next baseball fan. But I realize I'm in a small minority. Like black people are already the minority and there's even a smaller minority of black people that follow baseball. So well, like what I will do is use the Negro leagues and the hundred years that has gone by to educate some people. And maybe some young black kids will be like, Hey, you know, I, I like baseball and I'm not the first to like baseball. Like this stuff has been around and black people have a history in the game and the game was played in a, a Negro league because we weren't allowed to play an MLB. Right. They made the Negro League so that these guys did have a place to play. They didn't take no for an answer. They fought back then, and some of those guys went on to play in MLB, and they were some of the best players, right? I feel like these young kids now don't realize some of the superheroes, some of the best players in the generations of baseball as we talk about the Hall of Fame and all this other stuff, the Willie Mazes, the Hank Aarons, not just Jackie Robinson. Of course, Jackie Robinson gets his day for what he did, but there was a bunch of guys that came after him that were stars and they were the best players, even, you know, in the seventies, like Reggie Jackson, there there's, there's guys through every era in, in the eighties. I want to do something on Joe Morgan, Joe Morgan just passed. And I feel like people don't talk about him enough. Obviously in the nineties, you got Barry Bonds, you got Ken Griffey jr. Uh, you got guys like Ricky Henderson, you know, like there's so many, there's so many pages. Frank Robinson. Frank Robinson. There's, there's so many Only guys got to win MVP in both leagues. There's so many and guys. Frank Robinson, the first black manager in both leagues. Yeah. Yeah. He so was I the just, first guy. He was the first black manager in the National League and then also became the first black manager in the American League because that's how slow baseball is. And that's how cool of a dude Frank Robinson was. Yeah. Oh, so I just feel like it's too. a, you know, it's on me to, to try and do something about it and do something with it. All my content that I put out, like, you know, let's put the message in the medicine type of thing. Like, you know, let's let's uh, let's shine some light on it. If MLB is not going to do it or I don't know who else is supposed to do it. That's why I, you know, I did it last year and and Jimmy John Boy loved it. He's like, this is great, man. Like, you know, only you could have really been able to do this like this. I, I did, you know, uh, I did a video on the Black Aces, which mm-hmm. are the, the African-American pitchers to win 20 games. I think there's like 15 of them, maybe less. Um, I did the third baseman talk, name a black third baseman. I named Charlie Hayes. And then I, I talked about Terry Pendleton. And a lot of people were like, you know, they didn't know anything about those guys. Uh, what was the other one I did? I, I started to talk a little bit about the Negro leagues and, and about the lack of African-American players. And I'm going to do more. Uh, you know, I look forward to, you know, this podcast coming out and I'll obviously retweet it and post it. And, you know, if you guys send me a video, I'll clip it up and do some stuff with it because these conversations need to be had. It's the only way we're going to get to a better place. And if you love the game, you should know about the history of the game and not just the selective history that they want you to know, but the full history. And then that's going to help us moving forward. Oh, man. Amen. We are so happy to have you. And um, this has been an amazing conversation. And I'm so looking forward to, one, just getting a chance to talk to you again about baseball, about 
uh, the Negro Leagues, about anything around the sport. And uh, I'm also so excited to listen to your talk with Bob later on. I'm excited for this journey for you. Um, the Negro Leagues is, has been near and dear to my heart for years, um, only because I love it. And that's it. And I love baseball. I love history. I love the untold story of it. And I don't know what draws me so near to it, but it touches me. And I am so happy to have other people coming in on it, learning about it. Um, I've directed people to the Negro League Baseball Museum. I have spent so much time telling these stories with my friends. This is, uh, it's, it's a great, it's a part of history we can actually celebrate, which is so rare in this country. So I am so excited. Um, thank you again for sharing your time with us. Uh, is there anything you'd like to uh, plug? Anything else you'd like to say before we get out of here? You guys are great. Uh, thank you for the time. I appreciate you guys reaching out. It was just a, a genuine extension. And uh, I'm glad we were able to, you know, get this done and, you know, go into the month, you know, tomorrow's February 1st. And, you know, we have some content and we have a podcast and we're on it. And there's a bunch of stuff that I plan to do. But uh, I'm blessed and thankful you guys, you know, had me on and you reached out. And, um, you know, it was like organic. It came together. And, and I think we got a, a good little podcast here that some people are going to enjoy. Yeah, I think this was uh, one of our best episodes, just finally having a conversation. I finally have someone other than Josh to talk to, so this is <laughs> huge, huge, huge thing for me. Um, but again, just thanks. No problem, We're fans guys. of you, Keith. We, we became fans of you on Twitter before we even listened to the show, so this is an honor having you on, man. We appreciate it. Awesome, Long-time listener, first-time talker. You know, <laughs> no All right. Again, to Keith for coming on the show and talking today. We really appreciate it. We had a great time. Um, he's a really great dude. And again, we highly recommend you check out his show. Uh, make sure you follow him on Twitter at Keith underscore McPherson. Uh, he's, a, he's a great dude. We really appreciate him taking time out of his day for this. Um, we had a lot of fun. Yeah. There's been a lot of other stuff happening in the baseball world recently that we're going to save for later so that this episode can be focused more strictly on our conversation. We think it was a good conversation. We think it was a worthwhile conversation for to be the sole focus of this episode. So the Arenado trade, Tanaka leaving the Yankees, other mo moves that have been made over the past week will be saved for Wednesday's episode. So make sure you check that out. Or sorry, Thursday's episode. We'll be saving it for Thursday's episode. So make sure you check that out. Um... In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at JuicingPod. You can hit us up via email at JuicingTheNumbers at gmail.com. And uh, until Thursday, y'all have a good one. Bye.